Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So this is where it all begins. There's not a single thing that God has withheld from us when it comes to spiritual blessings. There's nothing that we could need that God hasn't already made available to us in Christ. So everything that we need is there. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching with an overview of Ephesians in a message titled, The Wealth, Walk, and Warfare of the Believer. Now, here's Pastor Brian. All right, so here we are, and we are continuing our new study, and uh, we're going to take sort of a, an overview of the, the epistle today. Many years ago, a Bible teacher named Ruth Paxson wrote a commentary on Ephesians that she entitled The Wealth walk and warfare of the Christian. Uh, so I have shamelessly stolen that from her, and we're using that as our theme. I don't think she would mind. She's, of course, in heaven, and uh, she'd probably be honored because it, it was such a good breakdown. It really is a good big-picture description of the epistle's contents, and, and as you break it down, chapters one through three, they tell us about the wealth that we have as God's people. Chapter four, verse one, through chapter six, verse nine, talk about our walk, our, our lifestyle as God's people. And then chapter six, uh, beginning in verse 10, on through most of the rest of the chapter, gives us insight, vital an important insight into the subject of spiritual warfare. So today, I want to do what you might call a flyover of Ephesians and take a general look at each of these themes, beginning with chapters one through three, where Paul tells us of our wealth in Christ. But before we jump into that, what I want to point out to you that's important to realize is that the biblical method of putting forth divine revelation is to always start with God, who he is and what he's done. And that's exactly what the apostle does here in Ephesians. And he does that in most of his epistles, as a matter of fact. But, but in the bigger picture of the Bible itself, this is, the, the Bible is, first and foremost, it's about God. And so as we study the Bible, this is what we find. We find that we come first to God, to who he is, to what he's done. And then after we have been established in that, then we come to our responsibility. And the reason I even bring this up is because, unfortunately, quite often, it's the reverse. Quite often, you find that the, the big emphasis is on man and on the, the duty of man. So, you know, many times you, you hear sermons that are, mainly about, you know, what you should be doing for God. 
as a Christian. If you're a good Christian, the, these are the kinds of things that you're going to be doing. These are the kind of things that you're going to be involved in. Of course, there's a place to talk about that. We do have a responsibility. But our duty, if you will, the things that pertain to our behavior, according to the scripture, and if we look at it properly, these things all flow forth from the grace of God and the goodness of God that we are the recipients of. So the way the Bible presents it, everything we do is a response to God's goodness. So you see, it's important that I get established, first of all, in the goodness of God, the grace of God, in his love for me, in all that he is and he's done. As I come to know that, as I learn that, then the whole thing about walking becomes quite natural at that point. Of course, this is the way I'm going to walk because after all, look at all that God has done for me. And that's the way Paul lays it out. The first three chapters of this epistle, they are just nothing but a declaration of the riches that we have in Christ and all of the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. In the first three chapters, we're never told to do anything. In a sense, we're, our, our, you know, what we're really called to do is to just sit and be saturated in these great truths. Another commentary on Ephesians was broken down this way, sit, walk, and stand. That's a good breakdown too, because that's kind of what it's like. First of all, we're sitting. We're, we're seated, it says here in chapter one, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ. So here we are, we're to sit and just soak in the goodness of God and to get to understand his blessings, his love for us, his grace. And as we get ourselves, you know, just completely saturated in that, then when it comes time to now walk this way, it's like, well, of course we're going to walk this way. Absolutely, because of all that God's done for us. So that's the biblical method. And that's Paul's method that he employs. And that's what we see so clearly here in Ephesians. So beginning with the first three chapters, Paul starts it off by telling us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So this is where it all begins. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. There's not a single thing that God has withheld from us when it comes to spiritual blessings. There, there's nothing that we could need that God hasn't already made available to us in Christ. So everything that we need is there. So you see, it is, it is uh, it's not just possible, it, it is the way it should be that we, we should all enter into the fullness of what God has because he's made a way for that to happen with all of the spiritual blessings that he has extended toward us. We are, uh, the whole point that he's making here in these chapters is, is our, our, uh, our wealth that we have in Christ. Our wealth is incalculable. It, it's just beyond measure. And it's, it's these spiritual blessings. Now, he goes on and he begins to then list these blessings. And I'm just, I'm just gonna touch on them lightly today. We're gonna go into great detail on many of these, but the first thing he says in regard to spiritual blessings is we've been chosen, chosen 
by him, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now think about that for a second. God chose you to be his child. He, he picked you. He didn't have to, but he did. And he picked you with full knowledge of who you are, where you've been, what you've done, all of those things. He knows all of that. And he chose you anyway. That, to me, is so encouraging. You know, it's not like we're ever going to surprise God. It's not like there's going to come a point where he's going to say, you know, you know I, I thought I was getting a better deal. And now I realize that, you know, man, this person's just a loser. I got I to gotta get rid of this one. You know, God doesn't do that. He knows everything about us from the very beginning. But he chose us. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. That's amazing because we're not holy and we're not blameless, but he's actually made a way for that to happen. So Paul tells us that we've been chosen. Then he says that we've been predestined and, and being chosen and predestined are similar, but they're slightly different. And we'll talk in detail about predestination in the the days ahead, but we've been predestined to adoption as sons or as sons and daughters, children by Jesus Christ to himself. So remember too, all of this happened before the foundation of the world. You know, you are here today. If you're in a relationship with Christ today, you are here because God chose you before you were ever born. He chose you before he ever created the world. He ever brought the universe into existence. We were there in his heart and in his mind, and he brought you into the world, and now he's brought you to this place. You were predestined to be adopted to him through Jesus Christ. He then goes on and tells us that we are redeemed. We are redeemed. We've been, the, the picture of redemption is we've been purchased out of the slave market. We've been purchased out of bondage to sin and we've been purchased out of slavery and brought into God's family, really. That's the picture. We haven't simply been purchased and then let go to just kind of go and become anything or nothing, but we've, we've been purchased and brought into the relationship. That's what redemption implies. And then he says that there's forgiveness. And so we've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. You know, everything you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed through Christ, you've been forgiven of every single sin. There's nothing that you have ever done that God didn't forgive in Christ. And those things that so often plague us and haunt us and follow us throughout life, condemning us and causing us to doubt whether God could really love us or accept us, those things are all gone. God's removed them. The scripture in the Psalms tells us as far as the east is from the west. God has removed those things from us. He's taken our sins, according to Micah, and he's cast them into the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. Do you know today that you're forgiven? God's forgiven you. Maybe you're struggling with forgiving yourself. Sometimes that can happen. You got to work through that. But know this, God's forgiven you. That's what we have. That's part of the rich uh, spiritual blessing that we have. So we've been forgiven. But then Paul goes and he tells us that we've been accepted. 
We've been accepted in the beloved. God accepts you. You know, acceptance is, it's such a, you know, it's such a desirable thing, isn't it? We want to be accepted. I mean, who wants to be rejected? You know, that's, rejection is a, is a hard thing for us, right? And, you know, it, to some degree, it depends on who rejects you. I mean, you know, I would imagine with some people, you don't care. Well, they reject me, who cares? I don't, I don't like them anyway. <laughs> that's how I feel about certain people. But, you know, there are other people you, you're very much concerned as to whether they accept you or reject you, right? And if you were to be rejected, this would be very, very painful. But listen, here's the wonderful news. You're accepted by God. Of everybody to be accepted by, this is the most important person. We're accepted by God. We're accepted in the beloved. You see, as Paul says, we're in Christ. And then he says, we're accepted in the beloved. And listen, God, his acceptance of you today is just like his acceptance of Jesus Christ. Does God accept Jesus? Of course he does. God said concerning Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Guess what? He looks at you and he says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You think, well, how could that be? I know myself. You're accepted in the beloved. You see, when God sees you, he sees you in Christ. And here's something that's absolutely amazing. Did you know that the moment you received Jesus as your savior, you became as righteous as you could ever be. You can never, ever become more righteous. You are perfectly righteous because you've received the righteousness of Christ. Now, that's the way it is from God's point of view. And we call that positional righteousness. It's important that we understand that there are distinctions. There are these nuanced distinctions theologically that we need to understand. And if we don't get this, it will negatively affect us in our walk with the Lord. We need to understand that we are positionally as righteous as we could ever be. It can never be improved on. It's the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's how you are positionally. Now, practically, it's a different story, isn't it? See, God looks at us and he sees us perfect. Can't be improved. It's the perfect righteousness. We look at each other and we think, wait a second. That's, that doesn't look like perfect righteousness to me. We can see all kinds of flaws and faults in one another, right? We look in the mirror. We can see all kinds of flaws and faults in ourselves. But you see, that's the difference. There's the positional righteousness and there's the practical righteousness, and thank God our practical righteousness does not affect our positional righteousness. You know, if you have an unrighteous day, it doesn't mean that you're then unrighteous before God, thank God. If it did, we would be in a lot of trouble. We would be going to heaven one minute and hell the next and back and forth all day long and all week long. And, and then who knows? You know, if you just suddenly, your heart stopped all of a sudden, you'd be like, wait, where am I going? You, you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to have any... You wouldn't be able to have any assurance. Our assurance is based not on our ability, but on what Christ did. So we are accepted in the beloved. That's one of the, the, the riches that we have. And then he goes on. All of this is in the first chapter. Then he goes on and he tells us finally that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are sealed. God has placed his seal upon us. And what that signifies is ownership. 
God places his seal on you and says, you belong to me. You're mine. I own you. And Paul uses images that the people would be familiar with in his time. And this would be an image from the Roman government would put its seal or or a wealthy person would put their seal on a purchased possession. And and that seal would signify ownership. And it would also signify protection, especially if it was the seal of the Roman government. Something, the, the you know, Rome purchases something, puts their seal on it. That means it belongs to them. Don't touch it under the threat of death. And so Paul takes this imagery and he transfers it over to us. And he says that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, God's marked us with his seal, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that God is going to get us to heaven. That's the redemption of the purchased possession. When we get to heaven. But in the meantime, we have been sealed. And that's the guarantee. That's our guarantee that God's going to get us to where he would have us to be. So from there, Paul moves on as we go into the second chapter, and he tells us some more wonderful things. He shares with us more of our wealth in Christ. He tells us that although we were previously dead in trespasses and sins, we've been made alive together in Christ. We've been made alive. We've been brought to life. That's what's happened to us. We were formerly dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead to the reality of of God's presence. We were dead to any ability to hear his voice. We were incapable of pleasing him. But then God made us alive. He brought us to life through Christ. We've been made alive in Christ And he then says that we have become citizens of heaven. Made alive in Christ and now made citizens of heaven. You see, as God's people, we have a dual citizenship. We are, of course, citizens of earth. But our primary citizenship is in heaven. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, he reminded them of that. He said, for our citizenship is in heaven. And it's from heaven that we await the, the appearing of our Savior, who's going to take and he's going to transform these feeble bodies and he's going to make them like to his glorious body. So we have dual citizenship. I know many people who have dual citizenship. They're maybe uh, U.S. citizens was their primary citizenship and then they've been living abroad for years and they qualify and they, they get citizenship in other countries. But their primary citizenship is is the United States. And so with us, we do have citizenship on earth, but this is the foreign land. The, our, our country of origin, our true citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. So we've been made citizens. And then he says that we've become members of the household of God. Now, Paul is writing the audience in Ephesus this, this group of believers, this growing group of believers, uh, is predominantly a Gentile congregation. So Gentiles are those outside of the Jewish nation and the Jewish covenant. And of course, what happened is God chose Abraham, all of the people after the time of the flood, 
Uh, it didn't take long for people to turn their back on God again and refuse to follow him and seek him. And so at a certain point, God just sort of lets the Gentile nations go their way, even though he continues to provide the you know, seasons for crops to grow and you know, rain and sun and all those things. He says you know, he's, his mercies are over all of his works, like we read. And although he continued to do that for the population in general, he narrows things down and he starts working with this one family, which would become a nation, the nation of Israel. But then everybody else is outside of that. They're not part of the covenant. And so Paul's writing to people who have not been part of this covenant, but he says to them, you are now members of the household of God. But he describes their, their previous condition as without hope and without God in the world. That's where we were. We were without hope. We were without God. But we've been made now members of the family. We've been brought into the family. And that is such a wonderful thing to know that we are now members of God's household. When we read the Bible and we read about you know, the history of the children of Israel or we go back further and we read about the patriarchs and these people, you know what? Those are our relatives. Those are our family members. We're connected with them. And, you know, the more you get into your Bible and become familiar with it, you'll find as time goes on, you start to, you, you really start to sense that, you know, you're reading about your family members, you're reading your, about your ancestors and, and you connect with them and you, you feel that connection. I was at a memorial service yesterday for a young man, 21 years old, the son of a pastor, died in a car accident, precious kid amazing kid. And, you know, as we sat there through the service, um, they had a beautiful video presentation of his life and, you know, watching him as a little boy. And he loved the Bible stories and he liked to dress up like Bible characters and superheroes and all of that. And uh, it was so sweet. And then at one point, one of the persons who was giving the eulogy, uh, they just happened to mention that, you know, of course, he's in heaven. He trusted in Jesus. And they said, and you know, I'm sure he's, he's connecting with those heroes, David and Samson and, you know, the different people that as a young kid, you know, he really, he identified with them. And as, as he said that, I thought, you know, that's probably just exactly what's happening right now, because that's a reality. Members of God's family, members of God's household, we've been brought in. So all of these things, this is part of the wealth that the apostle says. And then he comes to the climactic uh, conclusion of this first section on the wealth of the Christian. And this is how he closes it out. He tells us that we are loved with a love that transcends knowledge. We are loved. We are, we are more loved than we can ever imagine. Did you know that? You are more loved than your mind could ever comprehend. How is it that we think so little of the love of God? How is it that we could think of God's love as being so small sometimes? We think of it so small as to, you know, it probably didn't survive this, this moment of sin or weakness that I had. No, it survives it. I love that passage in, I think it's Ecclesiastes, where it says love is stronger than death. And man, again, how, how much does God love us? Well, he loved us enough to send his most beloved son to die for us. 
For the month of October, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. Our identity as a Christian is defined by who God says we are, and our identity in Christ connects us to God. But pornography attempts to unglue our identity from God and from others. It skews and distorts true manhood and true womanhood, enslaving millions. So in his book, The Death of Porn, Ray Ortland reminds us of the royal identity of men and women and the practical ways the bondage of pornography can be broken. If you want to be equipped to face the slavery of pornography in your life or the life of others, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.